Hi, this is Brent White, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I preached the following message on September 19th, 2017 at Hampton United Methodist Church. This is part three of my sermon series on Paul's letter to the Philippians. And in today's scripture, in Philippians chapter three, Paul talks about all that he's lost as a result of his commitment to follow Jesus and to fulfill his call in his life. And in comparison to what he's gained, Paul says, everything else is garbage. It's rubbish. Um, As the King James says, it's dung in comparison to what he's gained in Christ. These words convict me because, well, there are many things in my life that I would hesitate to call garbage in comparison to what I've gained in Jesus Christ. So, how can we learn to treasure Jesus the way that Paul does? Because it's, well, it's the secret to living a a happy and and joy-filled life. Anyway, that's what this sermon's about. I hope you enjoy it. Now, let me read today's scripture. It's from Philippians 3 verses 2 through 14. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Look out for the dogs. I'm afraid that's God's word to my beloved Yellow Jackets next Saturday. Sadly, with each passing week, it seems like we hear about new allegations against celebrities who have used their power to sexually abuse, to harass, to rape other people. In the case of Harvey Weinstein, one of the most powerful and influential producers in Hollywood over the past 30 years, friends and associates like Ben Affleck, like Quentin Tarantino, have publicly apologized 
because they knew this stuff was going on. Maybe they didn't know all the extent of it or the details of it, but they knew that their friend and associate was involved in this and they didn't do anything. They didn't confront him. They didn't do anything to stop it. And the truth is there were dozens, perhaps hundreds of other powerful people in Hollywood who knew about it and also didn't do anything. According to one article that I read in the New York Times, Harvey Weinstein's behavior was the worst kept secret in Hollywood. Why the silence? And I'm not talking about the silence among the victims. I understand that. But the silence on the part of the many powerful people in the film industry, including his friends and associates, why didn't they do anything or say anything to him? Why didn't they hold him accountable? Because, I believe, Harvey Weinstein had the power to make or break their careers. Harvey Weinstein had the power to make their Hollywood dreams come true or not. He had the power to, well, help them get Academy Awards. There are people who have, dozens of people who have Academy Awards in part because of his influence. So these friends and associates decided that they had too much to lose and they weren't willing to risk losing it, even for the sake of doing the right thing, telling the truth, being people of integrity. And I hope when you hear me say this, you don't think I'm coming on too strong or being self-righteous because I, I know in my own life in different ways, I have also failed many times to show that kind of integrity. How very different, by contrast, is the Apostle Paul, as we see in today's scripture. He is willing to lose everything that the world places a high value on. Everything that made Paul somebody in the eyes of the world Why? Why was he willing to lose everything? Well, that's what this sermon is mostly about. Our scripture begins, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What's this about? In our country, in which 44% of us own dogs and love and cherish our dogs, Um, we have a hard time imagining a world in which most people despised dogs, but that was the the Greco-Roman world of the first century. So when Paul refers to people as dogs, this is quite an insult. This is quite a put-down. Who were these people? They were known as Judaizers. They were false teachers who, ostensibly Christians, who would infiltrate Paul's churches. And they would tell uh, Gentiles, especially, that Paul's gospel was deficient. That Paul was wrong to teach these Gentile church members that they were justified by faith alone, um, through grace alone, because of Christ alone. Paul was wrong to teach uh, that Gentiles could be fully Christian, could be fully accepted by God on the basis of faith and not also on the basis of, well, getting circumcised, um, following Jewish dietary laws and following other laws and customs 
um, of Judaism. Basically, these false teachers were saying that in order to be fully Christian, you have to first become Jewish. And Paul says no. In fact, he says emphatically no uh, in his letter to the Galatians and in his letter to the Romans. The only role, Paul says, that the law, that God's law plays in saving us, albeit an important and necessary role, is in showing us how utterly sinful we all are, how impossible it is to keep God's law, how desperately we need a Savior who could do it for us because we can't do it on our own. And praise the Lord, that's what Jesus did. But to believe that you have to add something to what Christ accomplished, even a small thing like circumcision, Paul says that is to place confidence in the flesh. Besides, Paul says, if there's anyone out there who has reason to be confident in the flesh, that's me, he says. I wish... um, I wish Kyle King still lived in Hampton because he would appreciate the following sermon illustration, but I'm sure that in a crowd our size, there's at least a few Star Trek fans out there. Some of you have seen the movie Star Trek VI. This was the movie in which the Federation, the good guys, are negotiating a peace treaty with the hated enemy, the Klingons. And Captain Kirk, who has spent a long and successful career battling the Klingons, watching the Klingons kill his own son, he has been put in charge of the peace process. It is up to him and his crew to ensure that this document, this treaty, gets signed. And he can't stand it. He hates that he has this job and he confides in his first officer, Spock. And he says, why, why are they having me do this, of all people? I mean, I hate the Klingons. They killed my son. And, and Spock, in his wisdom, looks at Captain Kirk and says that this reminds him of an ancient Vulcan proverb. Only Nixon could go to China. <laughs> in other words, it was fitting that Kirk was the one who was vouching for this peace treaty because no one could question his credentials as a sworn enemy of the Klingons. Just like back in the 70s, no one could question Nixon's commitment to fighting communism. So it was appropriate for him to go to China. You know, we could believe that, uh, that this was a good deal that he was working out. So when Kirk says, trust me, When I say that you need to support this peace treaty, Kirk has a lot of credibility. That's what Paul is doing in today's scripture. He is reminding the Philippians of his credentials as a Jew, as a formerly strict observer of the Jewish law. No one could touch Paul's resume when it came to following the law. Of Moses. In verse 4, he writes, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, if anyone ought to teach that righteousness can come through obeying the law, it's Paul, because nobody did it better than he did. Nobody was more faithful to following the law. Nobody was, was as committed to following the law. 
No one was more scrupulous about observing the law than Paul, and everyone knew it. So Paul stood on a very lofty perch when he told these Philippians, all of my efforts to justify myself under the law, to save myself by keeping the law, to be righteous by following the law, count for nothing. All of the the privileges that I enjoyed as a well-respected member of the Jewish guild mean nothing. All of my accomplishments mean nothing. All the praise that I enjoyed from others means nothing. My reputation means nothing. My worldly success means nothing. I have suffered the loss of everything that the world places a value on. And I am telling you that it doesn't matter to me at all. In fact, all these trophies, all these tokens of success, all these accolades, all these attaboys that used to be so important to me, they are garbage to me now in comparison to what I've found in Christ. In fact, Paul actually says they're, they're worse than garbage. The King James gets it right in verse 8 when it translates that word as dung. Just listen to Paul's words. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as dung, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I hear these words and they convict me. Do they convict you as well? I mean, imagine taking a spreadsheet and in one column on the left side, listing everything that you value besides Jesus Christ. What would that include? Well, if you're a parent, it would surely include your children, right? Um, Your grandchildren, your spouse, if you're married, girlfriend, boyfriend, your friends and family, your military service record, your college degree, your career, your job, your reputation, awards that you've won, your accomplishments, your money, your wealth, your your home, your retirement nest egg, your hobbies, your toys, your electronic gadgets, your, your loyalty to your favorite sports team. My point is, like Paul, we all have these things that we value, that make us feel special, that distinguish us from others, things that we're proud of. And most of these things are perfectly good by all means. I've told you before that when my first child, my daughter, Elisa, was born 18 years ago in two weeks, and I first held her in my two hands because she was this little thing. She was premature and she was so tiny. But when I held her in my hands, I promise I looked at her and I thought, I would die for you because you are the greatest thing. I, you're more valuable to me than, than my life or, or anything that I have. I would die for you. And of course, I feel that way about my two uh, boys who came later. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there is everything right about that, by all means. So you look at this spreadsheet, and which includes a column on the left listing all these valuable people and things in your life, whatever that list looks like for you. And there's a column on the right with one word or one name, and that name is Jesus Christ. Okay, now imagine printing out that spreadsheet and taking a red pen and writing over each item in that list on the left. Loss. Loss. Elisa. Loss. Townsend. Loss. Ian. Loss. My wife, Lisa, who has proven that she loves me as unconditionally as is humanly possible. Loss. My job as a pastor. Loss. My Georgia Tech degrees, which I I no longer use, but you know how I love my alma mater. Loss. You get the picture. Would I be willing to do that? I mean, I know talk is cheap and I might say, oh, that's no problem. But would I be willing to do that? Would, 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 would my actions reflect that? Would I be willing to, to say that all of these things in this column on the left are a loss compared with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord? If I sleep in on Sunday morning, how am I showing that my comfortable warm bed is a loss compared with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ? If I sleep with someone on Saturday night who's not my spouse, how am I showing that my love life is a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ? If I fail to give 10% of my income, a tithe to church, yet I go to movies whenever I want, and I have all the data for my smartphone that I, that I want, and I have all the clothes that I want, and I eat out and go to Chick-fil-A whenever I want. How am I showing that my money and my possessions are a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ? And you may say, oh, come on, Brent. Of course, the Apostle Paul counts everything as a loss. I mean, but he was an apostle. He literally died for his faith. We're not like him. We're not super Christians. We're just normal, average, everyday American Christians who are just doing the best we can to get by. We have to be practical. We have families to feed. We have mortgages or rent payments. We have car payments, eight to five jobs. We have kids to get through school. We're working double shifts at the factory, whatever it is. It's... Counting everything as, as lost, that's for more advanced Christians than us. That's for people like Paul, but that's not really for us. But this isn't true. Because look ahead in Philippians, in chapter 3, verse 17, Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. God's word tells us, in other words, that we ought to be like the Apostle Paul. And it's not just Philippians either. What do you make of of those hard sayings of Jesus? For example, 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this is hyperbole, which means Jesus is exaggerating intentionally in order to make a point. But Jesus's point is exactly the same as Paul's in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Even the strongest bonds of love that we know in this world are counted as loss. When you hear these words, do you, do, you, do you wonder if you're even a disciple at all? I wouldn't blame you. After all, Jesus says, I can't be a disciple if I put anything in front of him. And yet I find that I often put many things in front of him. When I hear these words as a preacher, I I worry that I've been soft peddling the gospel for the last 13 years. Have I made it too easy? Probably. And yet, and yet, now hear me, in a sense, it is easy. Jesus tells a parable. It's just a one verse parable in Matthew about a man who finds a treasure hidden in a field. Well, what does he do when he finds this buried treasure? Well, he buries it again and he he covers it up and he covers his tracks. He's no dummy. He doesn't want anybody else to find that treasure. And what does he do? He sells all of his possessions, Jesus says, takes that money and purchases that field so that he can have this treasure for himself. Was it hard for him to do that? No, (laughs) he was happy to do it. It sounds like it was the easiest thing for him to do in the world. I mean, how could he not sell everything he had when what he was gaining as a result was worth infinitely more? It wasn't hard. In fact, it was a matter of self-interest. It brought the man an incredible amount of pleasure and happiness and joy to give everything for the sake of this treasure. He thoroughly enjoyed it. So it wasn't hard. We're supposed to enjoy Christ as our treasure above all earthly treasures, just like that. That's how Paul enjoys Christ. That's how we need to enjoy Christ. We need to treasure him. There's a a great contemporary preacher He retired recently. His name is John Piper. He is famous or infamous for saying that we need to be Christian hedonists. He uses that term, Christian hedonists. Now, hedonism is, you know, when when your number one goal in life is the pursuit of pleasure. So we think of hedonism in terms of all these kinds of sinful things that we can get involved with. But, but, but Piper uses this word in a very provocative way to make an important point. If Christ is truly our treasure above all treasures, then following him ought to give us great pleasure. It ought to make us happier than anything else in the world. I agree with Piper. Another pastor, theologian that I like a lot. He's got a podcast I listen to. He's a retired Episcopal minister uh, named um, Paul Zoll. And like me, Paul Zoll loves 
old pop music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I listened to his podcast, and, and he also likes to say provocative things sometimes. For example, uh, Zoll, Dr. Zoll says that if you really want to understand God's love, if you want to just be blown away by how much our Lord Jesus loves us, what you ought to do is listen to Journey. The band, Journey, as in Don't Stop Believing, Journey. Now, when I think of Journey, when I think of Journey, I think of the seventh grade dance at age 13. And um, I went to this dance and I, I had a crush on a girl. Her name was Kristen. And I asked her to dance, not the fast dancing stuff, but the slow dance stuff. I, I asked her to dance. Uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller was really popular that year, so they were playing, you know, Beat It and Billie Jean and all that, but I wasn't interested in dancing to that stuff. I was interested in dancing to Journey. <laughs> and when I finally convinced Kristen to dance with me, which I'm not ashamed to say was the highlight of my life up to that point. Um, but when I finally convinced her to, do you know what song was playing? It was Journey and Steve Perry singing, I'm forever yours, faithfully. <laughs> it's the greatest song ever written, let's face it. And if it's not that song, maybe the only greater song would be maybe Open Arms, also by Journey. I think we, I danced to both those songs that night. If you're of a certain age, if you're of a certain age and you hear those songs, they will melt your heart. Why? Because you have fallen in love before. You remember what it's like to fall in love. You remember how you felt. It's the greatest thing. God's word tells us, and Paul tells us, and Jesus tells us in so many words that our love for him ought to be a lot more like falling in love than obeying the commands of a harsh and difficult taskmaster, like obeying a teacher who has the nerve to give homework over Thanksgiving break. Our relationship with Jesus is all about this kind of intimacy. When we love Jesus like that, if we love Jesus like that, nothing is really that difficult. Does it sound like Paul is having a difficult time of it? No. I mean, he is facing the trial of his life. He is facing literally capital punishment. He doesn't know whether this will kill him or not, but that's what he's facing. And he's written the most joyous, the happiest letter. I mean, he's filled with joy. He doesn't seem to care. Why? Because Christ is his treasure above all earthly treasures. So Paul is doing just fine. Brothers and sisters of Hampton United Methodist Church, I have had this growing intuition for a couple of years. In fact, I believe that the Lord has, has given this word to me, but you can decide for yourself whether or not it's true. I got some amens at nine o'clock. <laughs> Just please, please hear me out. 
This church needs to fall in love with Jesus again. We need to have our hearts melted again by the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to experience this love, experience it, feel it intensely. Not just something we we think about up here, but something that's in here, in our hearts. There is ultimately no challenge that our church faces that won't be overcome by falling in love with Jesus again. Will you say amen if you believe that? We, we find, see, at Hampton, we find too often that following Jesus is very hard. It, it's, it's much harder than it's supposed to be, brothers and sisters. And we, we find it hard because we've lost, too many of us have lost that love that we had at first, that love for Jesus, that heartwarming, warming, heart-melting love. And it's, it's in part because we have all these other earthly treasures that we've placed ahead of the treasure that we have in Christ. Okay, maybe you're thinking, I hear you, Brent, but I'm not feeling it. Okay, now I'm going to talk about more. I'm going to talk more next week about how we can feel it. <laughs> Um, But let me leave you with this. If you're not feeling it, you're not feeling this love that Paul, that Jesus, that God's word says we're supposed to have, this great intimacy that we're supposed to have with our Lord, then this week, I want you to confess that to the Lord. Tell him, confess that, that, that you enjoy all these other things in your life and all these other people in your life more than you enjoy him. Admit that it's a problem and that it's not supposed to be this way. Tell the Lord to to kindle within you a holy dissatisfaction with this status quo. Tell him you don't want to live like that anymore. You want to know this kind of love either for the first time or as in the case of many of you, the love that you, you knew when you first met the Lord. But tell him. Let's pray. Almighty God, this love that we read about in Paul's letter to the Philippians, how we need it, how we need our hearts warmed by it, how we need our hearts melted by it, we can't get there on our own. We need your help. We need your Holy Spirit. And so we plead with you to please give us more. Give us more of your son, Jesus. Give us more. We don't have enough of him. Give us more, Lord. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, please feel free to come and worship with us at Hampton United Methodist Church. We have two worship services. We have an acoustic contemporary service at 9 o'clock and a more traditional service at 11. Hope to see you there.